Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Heparin has historically been used for anticoagulation and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, in pediatric patients. But heparin comes with its own limitations, such as risk of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and potential antithrombin deficiency. Bivalrudin is an alternative anticoagulant that garnered attention with its pharmacologic benefits over heparin, as demonstrated in prior ECMO studies. Dr. Mai Wen Alyssa Lee walks us through recent published literature on the use of bivalrudin in pediatric ECMO so we can make the best decisions for this patient population. After today's presentation, you will be able to describe the utility and importance of anticoagulation ECMO, identify clinical factors to consider with the use of bivalrudin anticoagulation ECMO, and discuss literature evaluating the use of bivalrudin and its comparison to heparin for anticoagulation pediatric patients supported on ECMO. Before we get into the nitty gritty, let's start reviewing ECMO. So what exactly is ECMO? ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It can also be referred to as ECLS or extracorporeal life support. It is a method for providing temporary mechanical circulatory support for cardiac and or respiratory function in life-threatening situations. There are many different parts to the ECMO circuit, and for the purposes of this presentation, I'll be going over the very basic parts. The first being the blood pump, the membrane oxygenator, the blood tubing, and venous and arterial cannulas. Let's follow the blood flow. So first, deoxygenated blood will be taken from the patient through the venous system and go through the blood pump, and then enter the membrane oxygenator, where the blood will become oxygenated and carbon dioxide will be removed. This now oxygenated blood will then return to the patient's body, either by venous or arterial cannula, depending on the type of ECMO we're utilizing. On the note of types of ECMO, there are two. We have VA, or venoarterial ECMO, and VV, or venovenous ECMO. With VA ECMO, we can have support for heart and lung function. In VA ECMO, the blood will leave through the venous system, enter the blood pump, go through the membrane oxygenator, and return as oxygenated blood through an artery if using peripheral cannulation or through the ascending aorta if using central cannulation. On the other hand, we have VV ECMO, which only helps to support lung function. With VV ECMO, the blood will leave the venous system, go through the blood pump, through the membrane oxygenator, and then oxygenated blood will return into the patient into a vein right before the heart. This allows the, blood, or this allows the heart to pump now oxygenated blood throughout the patient's body. There are some inherent differences between VA and VV ECMO. The first being cardiac support. VA ECMO can provide cardiac support and assist systemic circulation, while VV ECMO does not. On the note of pulmonary circulation, VA ECMO bypasses pulmonary circulation, whereas VV ECMO helps to maintain pulmonary circulation. 
And lastly, pre-ECMO hemodynamic status. Prior to cannulation, patients who are to receive VA ECMO do not need to be hemodynamically stable, and this is because VA ECMO is capable of providing hemodynamic support to the patient. Whereas with VV ECMO, it is not capable to do so, and thus, prior to cannulation on VV ECMO, our patients have to be hemodynamically stable. There are many different indications for pediatric ECMO, and these are primarily cardiac or respiratory. For cardiac indications for pediatric ECMO, this can include congenital heart defects, such as ventricular outflow obstruction, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or septal defects, as well as myocarditis and cardiomyopathy. Some respiratory indications include persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, pneumonia, and respiratory distress syndrome. Overall, ECMO can serve as a bridge to three different destinations for these patients. It can serve as a bridge to transplant, to recovery, and to decision. According to ELSO, or the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization's International Summary Report of 2020, there were approximately 150,000 ECMO implants done across the world. Half of these implants were done in adults and the other half in children. Further breaking down the number of ECMO implants done in children, we see that 45,000 ECMO implants were done in our neonate patients and about 30,000 were done in our pediatric patients. This is approximately about a 60-40 split. We see here that overall, ECMO is utilized just as much in children as in adults. Though ECMO is a life-saving invention, it comes with its risks, one of it being thrombogenic risk. So the biosurfaces of the ECMO circuit membranes are breeding grounds for absorption of blood proteins, such as fibrinogen and von Willebrand factor. This initial absorption is immediate and can occur within minutes of exposure. Accumulation of these proteins can lead to formation of the fibrinogen nanosurface that will attract platelets, which will eventually become activated platelets and interact with this nanosurface. In conjunction with leukocyte adhesion to the artificial surface, thrombogenesis is enhanced and thus thrombus formation may occur. In our critically ill children on ECMO, inflammatory processes are bound to encourage this, so it is imperative for us to work to prevent clot formation in these patients. So now we will arrive to our first question for the day. For those who want to participate, you can participate in a web browser on pollev.com slash mayorx or you can text mayorx to the number 22333. I'm glad to see everyone picked D. Blood proteins can absorb to the circuit membranes and encourage thrombogenesis. Almost everyone picked the D. <laughs> um, and this will encourage the cascade of the platelets coming um, and also the thrombus formation. A is incorrect because ECMO circuits do carry inherent thrombogenic risks. And B and C are incorrect as these are not valid reasons for why ECMO circuits carry thermogenic risk. So now that we have <clears throat> talked about the importance of anticoagulation in ECMO, let's talk about the ELSO anticoagulation guidelines. These guidelines were published in 2014 to help guide clinicians into maintaining the delicate balance between preventing clot formation and preventing major bleeding. 
they heavily touched on the use of heparin and their recommendations for heparin anticoagulation. The first being an initial bolus at time of cannulation, then transitioning to a continuous infusion while the patient is maintained on ECMO, and monitoring parameters including ACT, anti-10A, PTT, and TEG. According to the ELSO anticoagulation guidelines, it is not recommended to perform just one of these monitoring parameters in order to monitor heparin activity. They also know that it is no longer acceptable practice for doing so. So, in other words, you have to monitor at least two of these monitoring parameters while a patient is on heparin. Now let's take a look at what we do here within our own institutional protocol. We'll start off with a heparin bolus at cannulation at either 100 units per kilo or 75 units per kilo, depending on the patient's bleeding status, with a post-bolus goal ACT of greater than 200. Then we'll transition them to a heparin drip, starting at 15 units per kilo per hour if either antithermin or FFP are part of the ECMO prime, and 20 units per kilo per hour if neither are included in the prime. In order to make our dose adjustments towards goal anticoagulation, we will use APTT or KTEG R time. Since heparin had been read, has been heavily touched upon in the ELSO anticoagulation, anticoagulation guidelines, let's talk about heparin. So here we have our heparin molecule and antithrombin, which is our endogenous anticoagulant. Together they'll form a heparin antithrombin complex, and the purpose of heparin is to greatly potentiate the action of antithrombin so that it can go ahead and inactivate certain coagulation factors, including thrombin and factor 10A. Some additional points to include about heparin is that the heparin antithrombin complex works on soluble free thrombin only and not fibrin-bound thrombin. It also has a very reliable antidote called protamine, which can be used for reversal of heparin either in preparation for major surgeries or in the event of major bleeding. So why is heparin so heavily used? Well, there's the whole element of prescriber familiarity. It's been used historically for years and years, and there's also much more data on it compared to other anticoagulants. Simply for cost, looking at the wholesale acquisition cost, heparin is much cheaper than its other anticoagulants. And lastly, it's easily reversible with that antidote, protamine. Although these are some great things about heparin, there are also some drawbacks that come with heparin as well. Some of the drawbacks that come with heparin include the phenomenon of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. HIT is an immune-mediated complication associated with heparin, and this is where, after several days, thrombocytopenia may follow after initial exposure of heparin. This may be difficult in the setting of ECMO to distinguish the cause of thrombocytopenia between HIT and ECMO. And this is because it, um, with ECMO, it can also cause thrombocytopenia and thrombosis through its own platelet activation and consumption and present very HIT-like. Another drawback we have is with heparin resistance. The definition of heparin resistance is the inability to maintain or achieve therapeutic anticoagulation on relatively high doses. This is where, despite climbing on our doses and we find our drip rate at a astrono relatively astronomical drip rate, that we're still not able to either achieve or maintain our therapeutic goals. 
The dose-based definition of heparin resistance varies from institution to institution, provider to provider, and also ultimately depends on age as well. The main driver behind heparin resistance is antithrombin deficiency. Recall that heparin requires antithrombin in order to optimize its anticoagulant activity. Developmentally, neonates and infants naturally have lower antithrombin levels compared to older children and adults. Andrew et al. published two different studies that measured the serum antithrombin levels in healthy term infants and healthy premature infants. They found the trend that as the child slowly got older, that serum antithrombin levels also increased in the child. Also, of note, healthy premature infants had relatively less antithrombin in their body than healthy term infants. They also proposed that compared to the average adult, that by uh, six months of age, healthy term infants would be able to achieve antithrombin levels in the serum close to that of the average adult. However, many studies that have been published thereafter have suggested otherwise. They have suggested that even in the young childhood age, that these patients will have relatively less antithrombin levels compared to the average adult up until close to adolescence. Antithrombin deficiency is certainly a contributing factor to heparin resistance, and so getting a level and replacing it may be considered. The ELSA guidelines provide a broad range of when to consider antithrombin supplementation, ranging from less than 30% to 80%. The threshold for antithrombin replacement varies from institution to institution. For us here at Mayo, we have an antithrombin supplementation algorithm located within our pediatric ECMO heparin anticoagulation guidelines that can help guide clinicians on when to consider supplementation. So with these drawbacks, we may want to possibly consider other options that we can use for anticoagulation in our pediatric patients that are on ECMO. One option that we can look at is bivalrudin. Bivalrudin is a direct thrombin inhibitor that works by binding to thrombin and occupying its active site. This is, for, this is going to prevent thrombin from further participating in the clotting cascade. Our endogenous proteolytic enzymes would then cleave off the part of the molecule that's sitting on the active site thus rendering bivalrudin useless and for, um, preventing further anticoagulate activity. This owes to the reversible nature of bivalrudin. When we're on bivalrudin, we'll usually monitor with ACT or APTT. We'll also have to be cognizant of renal impairment because bivalrudin is partially renally cleared. It also has a relatively short half-life in pediatric patients with about 15 to 18 minutes. This is compared to heparin, which is about 90 minutes of half-life. In the 2014 ELSO anticoagulation guidelines, they acknowledged the potential role of direct thrombin inhibitors for ECMO anticoagulation. However, no official dosing recommendations have been established. Since there are no official do dosing recommendations established, let's look at what we do here at Mayo Clinic. Here at Mayo Clinic, we'll start off with that heparin bolus at cannulation, and then we will transition the patient to a bivalrudin infusion, and this starting infusion rate will be based on their renal function. If the patient has a creatinine clearance greater than 60 mLs per minute, we'll start their rate off at 0.2 mg per kilo per hour. If they have a creatinine clearance less than or equal to 60 mLs per minute, we'll adjust per our protocol. 
We'll then make subsequent dose adjustments per protocol towards our goal APTT of 60 to 90 seconds. And here I have included this table from our protocol that helps to provide dosing guidance and rate changes and want to get repeat APTTs in order to help us achieve and maintain our goal APTTs. Now, let's talk about the inherent advantages and disadvantages of bivalrudin. One advantage of bivalrudin is that, is that it has a low risk of immunogenicity. Recall that HIT is an immune-mediated complication due to heparin, hence the name. With bivalrudin, we won't find ourselves in that situation. In fact, historically, bivalrudin has been recommended as an alternate anticoagulant in those who have a history of HIT. Another advantage of bivalrudin is that it does not rely on antithrombin to exert its anticoagulant effect, whereas with heparin, it relies on antithrombin in order to optimize its anticoagulant effect. This can be an attractive option to our pediatric patients who are more likely to have low antithrombin levels secondary to their development or congenital causes. And lastly, <clears throat> another advantage of bivalrudin is that it will bind to both soluble and fibrin-bound thrombin. The heparin and antithrombin complex can only bind to soluble free-floating thrombin. So <clears throat> the fact that bivalrudin can bind to both soluble and fibrin-bound thrombin may suggest that bivalrudin can disseminate to existing thrombi more profoundly. Now let's go on the other side and look at the inherent disadvantages of bivalrudin. First of all, it's pretty costly compared to heparin based on wholesale acquisition costs. The cost of one 250 milligram bivalrudin vial here at Mayo is about $78.70 versus a one 1,000 unit per ml vial of heparin, which costs $2.24. Though these prices may differ from institution to institution, relatively speaking, bivalrudin is more expensive than heparin based on wholesale acquisition costs. Another disadvantage of bivalrudin is that it undergoes partial renal clearance. We have to take into consideration <clears throat> renal clearance when deciding on initial dosing as well as anticipating any changes in dosing requirements if a patient were to develop an acute kidney injury or even worse. With heparin, we do not find ourselves in this issue because it does not rely on renal clearance. Another disadvantage of bivalrudin is that it gets rapidly cleaved by proteolytic enzymes, rendering it useless for further anticoagulation. Imagine when you have stagnant blood flow that bivalrudin is kind of just stuck in an area or kind of slowed down. These proteolytic enzymes will eventually catch up and chew up the bivalve. Therefore, any occurrence of thrombi may result from ineffective drug concentrations secondary to any stagnant blood flow. And lastly, there's no perfect antidote for bivalrudin. Unlike with heparin, which can rely on protamine, we don't really have a perfect antidote for bivalrudin. There are some studies that have explored the use of recombinant factor 7 to reverse bivalrudin. However, additional studies are needed to support this modality. Now, let's review the advantages of bivalrudin. What is one advantage in using bivalrudin anticoagulation in pediatric ECMO? <clears throat> A, bivalrudin continuous infusions are cheaper than heparin continuous infusions based on wholesale acquisition costs. B, bivalrudin does not depend on antithrombin for its anticoagulant activity. C, bivalrudin does not require renal dose adjustment in the setting of renal dysfunction. And D, bivalrudin has reliable reversal agent for use in the event of major bleeding.
Alrighty, I see that a majority of us picked B. Bivalrudens does not depend on antithrombin for its anticoagulant activity, and that's correct. That is the one advantage it has over heparin, which does depend on antithrombin for its anticoagulant activity. The reason why A is incorrect is we know that bivalrudin is actually much more expensive than heparin based on wholesale acquisition costs. C is incorrect because bivalrudin, though it partially uh, relies on renal clearance, we still have to consider renal dose adjustment in the setting of renal dysfunction, and that's even something we consider when selecting an initial uh, bivalrudin drip rate. And lastly, D is incorrect because bivalrudin has yet to have a reliable, well-established reversal agent for use in the event of major bleeding. Compared to heparin, which has protamine, um, the recombinant factor 7 is still under investigational use um, for the reversal of bivalrudin. Now we'll start to review some studies that have added to the growing body of evidence in pediatric patients. First, we have a study published by Nagel in 2013, and this is a case series that was done at the UC Davis Medical Center. I want to note that the purpose of this study was to share their experiences with using bivalrudin as an alternate anticoagulant to heparin, and so every patient in this study was on bival. They included patients who were less than or equal to 18 years of age on ECMO and had received bivalrudin between May 2006 and February 2011. Some measured outcomes of interest were median therapeutic bivalrudin dose and correlation between dose adjustment and APTT. So out of our 12 patients, 10 of the 12 patients in the study were no more than a year old in age. I also wanted to note that nine out of the 12 patients in the study were on VA ECMO. They also included the indication for transition to bivalrudin, and most of the patients who were transitioned um, from heparin to bivalrudin were due to heparin resistance or unstable ACTs. They found that the median heparin dose that patients were on prior to the transition was 97 units per kilo per hour, with a range anywhere from 42 to 129 units per kilo per hour. I would call that pretty resistant. Other uh, reasons for transitioning to bivalrudin at this institution were clotting on heparin and HIT. They found that <clears throat> in these patients that the median duration on ECMO was 226 hours, and time on bivalrudin, 92 hours. Now, the more interesting part is to see what they've done with their bival. So they start with an initial infusion rate ranging anywhere from 0.05 to 0.3 mg per kilo per hour. They found that their initial therapeutic dose was about 0.16 mg per kilo per hour. However, they noted that on subsequent days, days 1, 3, and 5, that this therapeutic dose had increased over time. They also looked at different monitoring approaches where they tried to stick to initial APTT goal and also 90 to 110% of their APTT goal. They found that it took longer to achieve their initial APTT goal and also it required more interventions than those taking the more aggressive approach. They especially found that those who were taking the approach of trying to achieve just the initial APTT goal spent less time on average within the goal range, whereas those who were taking a more aggressive approach of trying to achieve 90 to 110 percent APTT goal had spent about 90 or spent about 70 percent of time in the therapeutic range.
They also took a look at the dose-response relationship of 5-Arudin and APTT. They found that there was an ambiguous dose relationship and found an R-squared coefficient of 0.264. This means that approximately only 26% of the APTT response can be explained by the dose adjustments made on bivalridin. For completeness sake, I want to include the mortality data from the study, which included that 8 out of the 12 patients in the study had survived on ECMO, and out of those 8 patients, 5 of the 8 survived to discharge. The study had also looked to utilize if we need a bolus. They found that they were using medium bolus doses of 0.1 mg per kilo with a range of 0.04 to 0.14 mg per kilo. Seven bolus doses in total were administered in these 12 patients, and they also found that there was actually um, not strong enough evidence to suggest that a bolus dose is needed. In fact, they found that it did not affect any subsequent APTTs drawn one or two hours following the bolus dose. Overall, at the time of the publication of the study of 12 patients, this was the largest case series done in the pediatric population in which they explored the use of bivalrudin for ECMO anticoagulation. Since its publication in 2013, larger studies have been published since then. Now we're moving on to a more recent study by Hamza et al., which was published last year. The study was conducted at Cleveland Clinic and is a retrospective chart review in which they compared the use of heparin and bivalrudin. They included pediatric patients who are on ECMO between October 2014 and May 2018. I wanted to um, walk through the dosing schematics and the definition of resistance that this institution used for their study. For their initial heparin dosing, this was primarily age-based. Their monitoring parameters that they looked at when patients were on heparin included anti-10A, APTT, and ACT. Of note, when the antithrombin levels of the patient were less than 60, that is when they would consider giving thrombate 3 for supplementation. <clears throat> their definitions of heparin resistance had a trend where the older the patient was, the lower the threshold was for heparin resistance. And this makes a lot of sense considering um, that our most youngest patients are um, antithrombin deficient and thus may require more heparin um, in order to get fully anticoagulated. Lastly, for bivalrudin, they use that same 60 mil per minute cutoff that we do here at Mayo, and they either have the patient starting at 0.3 mg per kilo per hour or 0.15 mg per kilo per hour. They also monitored APTT depending on whether the patient had a standard ECMO or open chest. I just want to um, highlight some baseline characteristics with the 32 patients included in this study. Based on the median age within each cohort, our patients are generally a bit older in the study than in the last study. Recall that developmental antithrombin deficiency is most evident in our neonates and young infants, so it will be interesting to see what the study finds. Also to note, the majority of the patients in the study were on VA ECMO. Now, we talked about heparin resistance earlier, but what about bivalrudin resistance? This was something that the authors had witnessed in their study they looked at the bivalrudin dose required each day in order to maintain goal APTTs. They found that the APTTs measured from day one to day five had remained relatively the same, but the corresponding doses required to maintain that APTT had increased with each day. 
The study authors have proposed a few mechanisms to explain this phenomenon. Some of these mechanisms include increased renal clearance. So following cannulation, a patient's renal clearance will eventually return to baseline and will be enhanced compared to what it was prior to cannulation, and thus higher doses may be required. There is also the hypothesis of upregulation of proteolytic enzymes. This, in conjunction with blood stagnation in either the circuit or intracardiac stagnation, will certainly decrease bivalrudin efficacy. Another proposed mechanism that the study authors shared was competitive inhibition between bivalrudin and fibrinogen. Fibrinogen concentration in serum is increased over time, and so competitive inhibition for binding to thrombin will increase as well, eventually leading to decreased bivalrudin efficacy. Let's take a look at the results that this study has shared. They found that um, compared to heparin, the patients who received bivalrudin had reached their target anticoagulation goals much faster. They also found no significant differences between the incidence of thrombotic events and episodes of HIT. However, they found that patients receiving bivalrudin had significantly less bleeding events per 10 days of mechanical life support. Looking at blood factors and supplementation required, we see that bivalrudin <coughs> cohorts had required less fresh frozen plasma, packed red blood cells, and antithrombin administered compared to those receiving heparin. However, total platelets and cryoprecipitate required by both cohorts had no significant differences. The study also took it upon themselves to perform a cost analysis and included what they believed to be the median daily costs of heparin and bivalrudin therapies. For the cost of heparin, they include in their calculation the cost of heparin, the cost of thrombate 3, cost of anti-10A levels, cost of APTT, and cost of antithrombin levels. For bivalrudin, they chose to leave out the cost of anti-10A since this wasn't utilized for monitoring bival, and also the cost of antithrombin 3 levels. What I found interesting was that they still included the cost of thrombate 3, which I don't really find that they use regularly anyway on those who are on bivalrudin. Well, they found that there was a significant difference in cost between bivalrudin and heparin, and this comes to no surprise to us because we had stated earlier that bivalrudin is much more expensive than heparin. They also found that cost of APTTs on the daily were um, more expensive in those receiving bivalrudin than those receiving heparin, and this kind of makes sense because in bivalrudin, we primarily re rely on APTT for anticoagulant monitoring. However, the bill ends up being more for heparin than for bivalrudin at the end of the day. They found that in total, the normal daily cost is about $1,184 for those on heparin and for only $494 for those on bivalrudin. So I was curious and wanted to extrapolate this to what we do here at Mayo and what that may look like. Um, so I had used more or less the same components that they did in their own cost analysis. However, I chose to leave out in the bivalrudin group um, the cost of thrombate 3 because I really um, don't believe that this is something we use regularly in these patients. And so I did all these calculations based on a theoretical 10 kilo child um, with either a heparin rate at 20 units per kilo per hour or bival at 0.3 mg per kilo per hour. Pretty standard starting rates, I would say. 
So we see that even with this, bivalrudin still ends up being more um, just purely from drug cost standpoint uh, than heparin in a day. However, when we tally up the total costs, we find that heparin can cost $4,897 and a day on bival can cost $178. I did want to note that these costs um, that I used to calculate these were represented by patient charges and not charges to the hospital, though we can certainly extrapolate to how much this would cost us for the hospital. Now, we might not be using um, thrombate 3 every day. We might not be using antithrombin levels every day for those on heparin. So let's just leave these out. We see that it still ends up being a little more expensive using heparin than using bival. Now, for our last study that we'll review, um, this was a study that was recently published um, in April of this year, and this study was actually done here at Mayo Clinic. And this study had covered um, both adult and pediatric populations. However, for the purpose of this presentation, we'll only review the pediatric cohort data. This was a retrospective chart review that included pediatric patients who were on ECMO between January 2014 and October 2019. <clears throat> These patients, some of the measured outcomes that they included were mortality, ECMO-free days, and hospital-free days. So the age distribution is much more varied in this study and has representation of ages across the board. However, a majority of these patients in the study are less than one years of age. The most frequent indication for ECMO and heparin group is uh, the postcardiotomy, while in the bivalridin group, it was primarily respiratory causes for being on ECMO. However, these differences in indication were not statistically significant. Also of note, most of the patients in the study were on VA ECMO, and they did find a significant difference in the amount of patients that had aortic cannulation with more being in heparin than in bivalridin. Now, looking at the results, we see that with hospital mortality, there was no significant difference in pediatric patients who were on heparin versus bivalridin. They actually found in the adult portion of the study that they found a significant difference um, in mortality, where mortality was lower in the bivalridin group. Some other results that they reported were hospital length of stay following ECMO start, composite circuit intervention oxygenator pump changeout rates, anticoagulation dose changes per day, and also ECMO, ECMO laboratory values grabbed. And even the uh, number of antithrombin levels obtained daily did not differ significantly between the two cohorts. So what is the real benefit of using heparin versus bivalridin? Just looking at these results. Well, they actually found the potential advantage of bivalrudin over heparin through their multivariate analysis, in which they suggested that uh, bivalrudin can offer more uh, hospital-free days within a 35-day period. Hospital-free days meaning time alive and out of the hospital within the first 35 days. Looking at additional results, we see that there was significantly less uh, transfusions needed in the bivalrudin cohort during the first 24 hours on ECMO. However, within the individual transfusion types, there are no significant differences. They also noted um, any transfusions within 24 hours to a seven-day period, that there were no significant differences between the two cohorts. However, they found that when they looked at the number of platelets infused at this time, that those receiving bivalrudin had significantly less platelets transfused. 
There were also no differences in the amount of ischemic complications that occurred between both of these groups. And so they also did a multivariate study um, in this analysis, and they also found and reaffirmed that bivalrudin can potentially decrease the amount of transfusions needed, especially during the first 24 hours on ECMO. So now we're on to our last question for the day, in which we will decide which patient would benefit most from bivalrudin anticoagulation at this time. Patient A is a six-year-old male who was recently cannulated on VA ECMO and is therapeutic on their current heparin drip running at 30 units per kilo per hour. Patient B is a three-month female who has required antithrombin supplementation three times, remains subtherapeutic on heparin drip, which is currently running at 78 units per kilo per hour. Patient C is an eight-month-old male who has labile renal function with two recent AKIs, and there's discussion of possible CRRT in the future. Otherwise, the patient is therapeutic on their heparin drip at 46 units per kilo per hour. Lastly, we have patient D, who is a one-year-old female who occasionally needs antithrombin supplementation while on a heparin drip, and they're planning to clamp trial soon. Well, it seems that everyone's picking patient B, which is correct. This patient would benefit most from bivalrudin anticoagulation at this time because despite this patient's age, which can suggest they have de developmentally um, low antithrombin, they required antithrombin supplementation three times, and despite all that, they're still subtherapeutic on their heparin drip, which is running at 78 units per kilo per hour. And if you're familiar with pediatric dosing, that's pretty uh, much on the high end. So why patient A would not benefit from bivalrudin anticoagulation most at this time? Well, they're already therapeutic on their heparin drip, and they're at a pretty decent rate of 30 units per kilo per hour. Why patient C would not benefit most from bivalrudin anticoagulation at this time is because, well, first of all, they're therapeutic on their own heparin drip as well, which is running at 46 units per kilo per hour, decent rate. Um, but also the patient has labile renal function with two recent AKIs, and they're even discussing possible CRRT in the future. Though uh, renal dysfunction is not an absolute contraindication to using bivalrudin, we'd certainly want to wait until the patient's more stable um, with their renal function, possibly after they're started on CRRT, if that's an option, um, before initiating bivalrudin, or else we will likely see fluctuations in efficacy and our um, monitoring parameters. And again, the patient's therapeutic on their current drip. And lastly, we wouldn't recommend using bivalrudin at this time for patient D because although the patient has occasionally needed antithrombin supplementation while on their drip, they are planning to clamp trials soon. Um, and so for clamp trialing, that can um, encourage blood stagnation. And if you can recall, blood stagnation can encourage those proteolytic enzymes to go chew up the bivalrudin faster and decrease the efficacy. Um, so if this patient, after their clamp trial, they for some reason need to be on ECMO much longer and the patient continues to still need antithrombin supplementation and not therapeutic on their heparin drip, then sure, we can consider bivalrudin in that patient, but not at this time. So let's see what's to come for bivalrudin anticoagulation pediatric ECMO. There's actually a prospective study um, actively recruiting, and it's being done at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. 
It's titled Study Comparing Bivalrudin Versus Heparin in Neonatal and Pediatric ECMO Patients. The primary aim of the study is to compare the efficacy of bivalrudin to heparin. So they're applying to recruit and enroll 30 patients with 15 patients in each arm, either the heparin arm or bivalrudin arm. The primary outcome of this study is to look at the percentage of time spent at goal anticoagulation through study completion. And they'll also look at secondary outcomes, including incidence of major bleeding events through study completion and number of blood products transfused. So it is exciting to see what was to come. We'll take a look at the literature that we actually uh, summarized. So first, we see that mortality benefit of bivalrudin over heparin is controversial in pediatric patients. Sealhammer's study had found a significant mortality reduction with use of bivalrudin in adult patients, but not pediatric patients. Bivalrudin is also a potentially cost-effective option, especially for those who are requiring frequent antithrombin supplementation and or develop heparin resistance. Hamza's study showed at their institution that bivalrudin proved to be a more cost-effective option. And, through the anti and though the anticoagulation prices themselves suggest that heparin is the cheaper of the two, the need for extra labs such as anti-10A and likelihood of requiring antithrombin-3 checks and supplementation is reduced with bivalrudin. And so the bill comes out cheaper for our patients who are deficient in antithrombin developmentally or through any genetic conditions and those who are meeting heparin resistance. And lastly, use of bivalrudin may decrease number of blood product transfusions needed compared to the amount needed with heparin. Reduction in transfusion of blood products comes with its own benefits, such as cost as well. In Sealhammer's and Hamza's studies, they show that there is potential for reduction in transfusion needs in patients receiving bivalrudin compared to those who are on heparin while on ECMO. With regard to a lesser need for platelets with bivalrudin, this is likely due to the low risk of thrombocytopenia and immunogenicity with bivalrudin, and it's especially least likely to cause non-immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. When to consider bivalrudin use? We would consider using bival in our uh, pediatric patients who either have a history of HIT or have a known antithrombin deficiency or even have um, heparin resistance. While on bivalrudin, we must also um, acknowledge that it will undergo some renal clearance, and we should be more cautious of dose adjustments in order to stay within therapeutic range as dose responses may change, especially in the settings of sudden AKIs. So other than that lovely prospective study, pretty much the first prospective study done in our pediatric patients, more studies in bivalrudin anticoagulation for pediatric ECMO are certainly warranted at this time. So I'm looking forward to see the results of that study and what the future holds for Bival. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.